All right, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Several places in the Scripture, the Bible tells us what Christ's mission was when he came to earth. We've seen several of these in Matthew already, right? But Matthew 121, uh, he was to be given the name Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. Recently, we, we heard Jesus himself declare, I came to call sinners to repentance in Matthew 9.13. Jesus says in Mark 10.45, he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. In John 17, in the high priestly prayer, Jesus says something to the effect of, I, I came, Father, to, to glorify you by accomplishing the work that you gave me to do. Right, so there's several times, and, and certainly there's probably other places as well, that it talks about what we could say is the mission of Jesus, the mission of Jesus Christ. But in our, the reason I bring all that up is in our text today, we're going to see uh, another kind of mission statement from Jesus, and it's not one that we would expect. It's actually very shocking. All right, so we want to turn our attention to uh, Matthew 10, Verses 34 through 42. Matthew 10, verses 34 through 42. Would you stand, please, in honor of God's word as I read the passage we want to consider this morning? Please follow along in your, your copy. Matthew 10, 34. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Amen. Please be seated. What does it mean to be a Christian? It's a very important question, isn't it? What does it mean to be a Christian? How would you describe it? Well, our text today will show us that being a Christian means that you love Jesus more than anyone or anything else in life. Being a Christian means that you love Jesus more than anyone or anything else in life. So that's important for us to understand. We're in this this passage where Jesus has been um, instructing his disciples, sending them out with the gospel and and telling them they're going to encounter persecution. And it's in the midst of that context that um, as, as he prepares them for persecution, even from their own families, that we just... We, we get this very, very important teaching on discipleship, 
on what it means to follow Christ. And so I organized our time around two statements today. You'll see that in the bulletin there. Uh, we're going to spend most of our time on the first statement, right? That's usually how it goes, isn't it? Um, and that's certainly going to be the case today. So number one is Jesus demands supreme loyalty. Jesus demands supreme loyalty. And I'm going to give you two bullet points under this, under this first statement. The first of those is this. You could say overall relationships, right? You know, you say Jesus demands supreme loyalty. Well, let's get even more specific. Jesus demands supreme loyalty to him over all other relationships. That's our first point we want to really look at. And so we begin in verse 34, again, with this shocking mission statement from Jesus. He says, do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. So twice Jesus says, in, in essence, I've not come to bring peace. And that was shocking because most people expected the Messiah to bring peace, right? And they really had reason to expect that. I mean, the Old Testament proclaimed that the Messiah would bring peace. A familiar passage, right? Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. What's the next one? Prince of peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Zechariah 9.10, speaking of the Messiah, he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And there's many other examples, but the prophets anticipated, they proclaimed the Messiah ushering in peace. And even when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the angels announced peace, right? Remember Luke 2.14, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So understandably, um, Israel, right, God's people at the time were, were anticipating the Messiah bringing peace. And he would bring peace, but not the kind of peace they were expecting. Right? Israel was looking for physical peace from their enemies. They were looking for and longing for there to be a time of unchallenged worship of God to the ends of the earth. And Jesus will bring that about at his second coming. Right? And so that's what's tricky about the, the prophets is, is they kind of would oftentimes just talk about the, the coming of the Messiah, the work of the Messiah as one big unit. But now we understand that he was doing some things the first time he came, and then he's going to do the rest of the things the second time he comes, right? So with his first advent, Jesus was bringing peace with God, right? Jesus was bringing peace with God by reconciling sinners to God through his finished work on the cross, on the cross. And now here in Matthew 10, remember the context is Jesus sending out his disciples and he's warning them of physical persecution. He's telling his disciples that people are going to hate them because they're identifying with Christ, because they're proclaiming Christ. And he's, he's warning them, people are even going to want to kill you, right? And so since this did not match what people expected when the Messiah came, Jesus is making this point now. He's saying it twice in verse 34. I've not come to bring peace. Instead, I've come to bring a sword. So a sword is, is a metaphor for division. That's what he means. Jesus is saying, I've not come to bring peace. I've actually come to bring division. Did, did you know the gospel divides people, right? Right? 
Uh, the gospel is, is different than, than everything else people say. Well, you can believe what you want to believe, and I'll believe it. No, the gospel says Jesus is Lord. He's the only way to God. And you either believe it or you reject it. There's really no middle ground, it, so it does divide people. And so Jesus says, I've come to bring division. And, but specifically, he's talking, he's honing in on these intimate relationships. He's saying, I've come to bring conflict and again, that, that's kind of shocking, isn't it? Well, Jesus, that doesn't sound like you. <laughs> that doesn't sound like something you would do to bring division, but he it explains it. Look at verse 35. For, right? He's, ex- he's giving a reason, kind of. He's a, a, an explanation. For, I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. So Jesus is saying, I've come to bring division even among families, even among this this intimate, um, personal unit. I've come to bring division. Now, we need to understand what he's saying here, right? Jesus is not saying that those who follow him, that Christian members, are going to turn against their family. He's not saying that. No, it's going to be the other way around. Family members will turn against they're family members who have decided to follow Christ, right? You understand? So those who follow Christ, they will find themselves um, being shunned, rejected, or worse from family. That's what he's saying. And so since this is the inevitable effect of Jesus saving people, of Jesus calling people to be his disciples, then in a sense he can say he's come to bring it about. Because that was his mission, to call sinners to repentance. And as I do that, it's going to cause division. So that's why he's saying, hey, I've I've come to bring a sword. I've come to bring division among families. Obviously, that's not his primary mission, right? His primary mission is to save sinners. But an effect of it is it's going to radically change their relationships. And probably a lot of you are tracking with that and thinking, okay, yeah, I, I see that. I've kind of maybe experienced that. But again, we might say, well, why, really, why does this happen? I mean, why do people turn against members of their own family who become Christians? And verse 37 really points to the reason. As Jesus lays out the demand of discipleship, what it means to be a Christian. Verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, let's make sure we understand. Okay, worthy of me does not mean that, oh man, if I work hard, or if I just love enough, or if I do the right thing, I'm going to somehow reach this status where I'm worthy of salvation, right? That's not what that means. We're never worthy of salvation, right? It's by God's grace, When Jesus says, not worthy of me, he means you don't have what it takes to be a disciple. Okay? So that's an important kind of interpretation or translation you need to do there. So if you look at verse 37 again, Jesus says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me does not have what it takes to be my disciple. A disciple is a Christian, right? We're not talking about an elite Christian. We're talking about a Christian Whoever loves son or daughter more than me does not have what it takes 
to be my disciple. Or to say it positively, a disciple of Jesus, a Christian, must love Jesus more than anyone or anything in this world. That's what Jesus says. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? To follow Jesus, to be a Christian, means you love Jesus supremely. More than your spouse, more than your parents, more than even your kids. Being a Christian means your most important relationship is your relationship with Jesus. Okay? Now... Don't get me wrong, becoming a Christian should actually make you a better mother or father or son or daughter or brother or sister, right? I mean, it should actually, in one sense, help your family relation, help you be a better family member. Let's just put it that way, right? Because when Jesus saves you, he sets you free from bondage to selfishness. And now you have the Holy Spirit inside you, transforming you to bear the fruit of love and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. So the best thing you can do for your family is to, is to love Christ supremely. The more you love Christ, the better you'll be able to love and serve your family. Right? As you pursue Christ first, his spirit will transform you more into the image of Christ. And you'll be able to be the kind of husband or wife or father or mother or child, or uh, son, or daughter, that God wants you to be. So becoming a Christian should make you a better family member, which again, if we're trying to think, well, why do, why does, do families then sometimes reject those who become Christians, right? In a way, it doesn't, at first it doesn't make sense, because it's like, well, the fact that they're a Christian, they should actually be <laughs> more pleasant to be around now, right? They should actually be a more loving, more serving person, and but here's, here's where the division starts to show itself. When Jesus saves you, your priorities change. Right? When Jesus saves you, your values change. When Jesus saves you, your pursuits in life change. How you spend your time and money is now oriented toward God and his kingdom. And that what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, seek first his kingdom, his righteousness. Now your primary allegiance belongs to Christ. And this is what causes division with the unsaved world. Even your unsaved family members. Because what do we know about this world? Because of sin, because sin has entered this world, we're all born sinners, and so this fallen world is set in rebellion against God and his anointed one, his son, King Jesus, right? So understand that about the world. This world is set in rebellion against Jesus. We've talked about that, I think, in recent weeks. For some in this world, there's open hostility against Jesus, right? I mean, think about those who are... are, um, in other religions, um, I mean, clearly, when they, when they have family members who turn to Jesus, they're, you know, now they're the enemy, right? I mean, they're going to disown them or worse. And, and that was certainly what was going to probably happen to many of Jesus' original hearers. That's what's happened throughout church history, uh, that many who choose to follow Christ means family members disown them, um, 
uh, imprison them, maybe even kill them, right? So that's, that's one, you know, uh, type of reaction. But even if your family is not what you would say is just like openly hostile to, to Christ, that they want to, you know, kill Christians, because of sin, they still live in a settled inner rebellion against Christ. We need to understand this. This is something that's been real interesting. As we talk more about Jesus and discipleship, it really reveals more about man and total depravity, right? Um, Even if someone's not adamantly shaking their fists toward God, because of sin, they're living in in a sort of inner rebellion against God and against his son, Jesus Christ. And you say, well, how? Well, because... By nature, we're all living for ourselves, and we were created to live for God. But by nature, we're all thinking about, well, you know, life revolves around me, and this is what I want to pursue, and this is what I want, right? And that, so that's true of, of every person apart from Christ saving them, right? They're living for themselves. They believe they're autonomous. They, they're captains of their own soul. They determine what's right and wrong. They're not interested in bowing the knee to King Jesus. They li- so they're living with a completely different worldview than a Christian has, right? They're living in a worldview where mankind is the ultimate authority, where, you know, through science or, or education or philosophy or whatever, we determine what's right and wrong. We determine what's acceptable, They're living with a worldview where you pursue pleasure and the American dream. They're living with a worldview where you put your hope in in worldly institutions like education or or government to fix our problems. Or maybe, you know, your calling is to give yourself to a nonprofit, right? That's their worldview. But when you become a Christian, your worldview completely collides with the worldview of unbelievers, doesn't it? Because now you're living for King Jesus, right? And again, as you follow King Jesus, it should make you a better citizen and you should, you know, be a help to many people, absolutely. But your hope is not in the government and you're, you're not living for yourself. You're living for Jesus and you're living to serve others in the name of Jesus. And so when you become a Christian, it's going to create this, this conflict, this tension between you and your unsaved family. And, and again, I know you guys, are, you guys, a lot of you are, have experienced this, right? So you don't even need me to explain this to you, right? You've, you know, I'm just thinking of probably some of the different things you guys have heard, right? Well, why do you want to homeschool your kids, right? Why do you spend so much time at church? Why do you leave the family gatherings early, you know, right around the time when the, the alcohol really starts flowing, you know? Why won't you come support your niece's wedding to another woman? Why won't you come to the lake or the coast with us on Sunday? Right? I mean, these things happen, right? The world Worldviews collide because you're like, I want to worship Jesus. I want to be with my church family. I'm, I'm, I want to serve him. I'm, I'm, I need to obey him now. And so the things I used to do with you all, You know, if they're sinful, I can't do them anymore because Jesus is Lord. So family members think we're strange at best 
or they actually start getting really offended, don't they? They start uh, getting angry, perhaps, or, or hurt, or, you know, and out of that hurt or anger, maybe they'll start persecuting you in some way. Oh, you think you're better than us, huh? Is that what it is? And then you're like, no, no, it's not that. I, I just love Jesus, and I want him to have the first place in my life. I know I'm a sinner saved by grace, right? But that, the conflict happens. And again, Jesus, throughout this whole chapter, he's been telling us to expect this, right? He's saying, a student is not above his teacher, right? If they did this to, the, to me, the teacher, the master, they're certainly going to do it to you. Jesus is the light of the world, and, and, the, and the, the darkness hates the light. Now we're, we become children of light, Ephesians 5.8 says. And so even as we're just living our lives, we're, we're shining out, hopefully, the light of Jesus, right? And by God's grace, that will attract some people, but it will also certainly repel some people because they don't want their deeds exposed. So what Jesus is saying here, again, Jesus never calls us to abandon family, abandon our responsibilities to people, right? That, in that sense, but our unsafe family may turn their back on us. And so sometimes certainly becoming a disciple or being a disciple means choosing between family and Jesus. And Jesus, he experiences this same kind of division even in his physical family while he's on earth, right? We haven't gotten to that yet, but in Matthew 12, 46, his mother and brothers are going to be basically trying to stop him, you know, thinking he's crazy for, for preaching and, and, you know, claiming to be the Messiah. And so in twelve forty six. It talks about uh, his mother and brothers are outside, but he replied to the person who told him that, who is my mother, who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my, mother, is my brother and sister and mother. So we know Jesus was certainly a loving son, a loving brother to his physical family, but he had his priorities right, didn't he? He said, I'm serving God, and I'm calling other people to serve God with me, and they're my family. And that's one of the beautiful truths about this. I mean, this is hard stuff. I mean, who wants there to be division among your family? Who wants there to be rejection from your own family? But Jesus promises that whenever, whatever family relationships we lose or whatever relationships become strained, we gain back in abundance through the gospel through the body of Christ. Okay? Hold your finger there and turn ahead to Mark chapter 10. I just really want you to see this verse because some of you may be right in the midst of experiencing this or you will in the future of, of having family uh, distance themselves from you. Mark ten twenty nine is the verse I want to read. Um, I guess we can get the context here in verse 28, Mark 10, 28. Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. That was true. 
Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now and this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. (laughs) So yes, it may cost you your relationships now. It may mean that your family doesn't understand you or that your friends desert you, but you are going to gain more relationships within the body of Christ. And, and we know, right, that those are, those are of a quality that, that can't even match family quality, right? I mean, it's a double blessing when, when your family are Christians because then it's like you have both, right? You know, you have that familial love and then you have the bond in, in Christ. But when our family members are not Christians, it's, we know how sweet the fellowship is with the body of Christ. Because we're, we're both blood-bought sinners who've been redeemed and, and who have eternal life, who gather together to worship and gather together to serve and gather together to learn and grow to become more like Christ. I love the church. Uh, praise God for the church, for the body of Christ. And I pray that um, you'll take advantage whenever the church is gathered to be with your church family, right? So Jesus says here, the sacrifices you make in leaving homes or brothers or sisters and mothers and children and fields to follow Jesus, he says those are nothing compared to the returns that you're going to receive now in the church and in heaven in the life to come. So you might be looking around your church family and saying, eh, this isn't as great as I thought it was going to be, Right? And he's saying, no, it's going to get better. It's going to get better. We're all still sinners. And, you know, God's still working on us. But one day we'll be fully transformed into the image of Christ. And we'll be with Jesus forever, worshiping him together and serving him together. And what a day that'll be, right? No more divided heart, no more conflicts. So Jesus, again... In preparing them for persecution, for family rejection, he's teaching us something very, very important about life, about being a Christian, about discipleship. Our loyalties cannot be divided. Our loyalties cannot be divided. And, and I know that, that gets hard, doesn't it? I mean, you know, those of you who have grown children, right? If your grown children start to do stuff that you know, and they want your kind of approval of it, Right? your endorsement of it, and you know it, you can't do that because of your allegiance to Christ, that's tough, isn't it? And, you, you know, you, you, you never try to break off the relationship. You know, you're always like, you know, I love you, and, but I just can't, I can't support what you're doing there. You know what I believe. God's going to be with you. Just like we saw the Holy, him say the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say when you're standing before kings, and standing before governors, God's going to help you stay strong and true to him. So Jesus demands supreme loyalty over all other relationships. A second point to consider under that first statement, even over my very life. Jesus demands supreme loyalty over my very life. Look at verse 38. 
And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So there's that phrase again. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not fit to be my disciple. Now, when the original hearers heard that, take, up, take your cross and follow me, what are they thinking of? Right? I mean, they've, they've seen it. They're thinking of the, the horrors of crucifixion, right? The, they're under Roman rule. That's what the Romans did to non-Roman citizens. You know, someone uh, having to carry a condemned criminal, having to do the death march, just like Jesus did, right? Walking through and carrying his crossbeam up to the place of execution. And so what does this mean for disciples? Well, Jesus is saying that to be my disciple... I came across this phrase this week. It was really helpful to me. And I hope it will help be helpful to you. To be my disciple, you must recognize that your life is not your own. To be my disciple, you must recognize that your life is not your own. That's what it means to take up your cross and follow him. That your life, you're, you're acknowledging my life is not my own. It belongs to Christ. My life needs to be shaped by obedience to Christ and his ways. I, I need to follow him wherever he leads me, even if that means suffering and, yes, death. Right? I mean, that's what he's been talking about in this context. Is that some are going to, some of you are going to be killed for my sake. So when you become a Christian, you're saying, my life is not my own. I belong to Jesus He can do with my life whatever he chooses to do. I have plans, and that's fine, but I've got to commit those to the Lord. He may change my plans. (laughs) I'm at his disposal. Man, this is so helpful because I think a lot of us don't think about the Christian life this way. I think we want Jesus to bless us and go along with our plans, right? (laughs) We, We still have this urge to be the master of our lives. We want Jesus to forgive our sins, give us eternal life, but I kind of want to hold on to my plans. But that's not what it means to be a Christian. Jesus says, being my disciple means recognizing your life is not your own, you belong to me. So by God's grace, we make that commitment when we first become a Christian, and then the Bible calls us to daily renew that commitment, right? In Luke's parallel account, he says, Jesus says uh, to daily deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. So this is something we keep preaching to ourselves, right? Every day. My life is not my own. I belong to Christ. Praise God. Second Corinthians 5.14 says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And so as a follower of Christ, I'm to daily die to self and follow Jesus. It means I'm going to follow him with God's help, I'm going to follow him in obedience. I'm going to follow him wherever he goes. As he leads me through trials, 
I'm going to keep following him, trusting him as he leads me to daily deny myself to serve others. I'm going to seek his grace to do that. As he leads me down a path of persecution and suffering by God's enablement, I will go. Even if it means my family is frustrated with me and distancing themselves from me. Again, like we've said before, it doesn't, we're not, this is not a license for us to be obnoxious and, and hard to get along with. No, I mean, we should be as loving as we can be, and as far as it depends on us, live at peace with all men. But if our commitment to Christ causes that distance, we say Jesus is worth it. I'm committed to Jesus even if it means rejection and death. That's what he's saying in verse 38. Many disciples are called to suffer even to the point of death. They die because of their allegiance to Christ. And so they're, they're showing that he means more to them than even their very life. And that leads in, right into verse 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. <laughs> right? So another one of these kind of like, you know, expressions we got to kind of sort out here, right? Whoever finds his life will lose it. So in that sense, finds it means in terms of worldly standards, right? I'm going to find it. I'm going to seek to be fulfilled. And, and I'm going to, you know, the, the values of the world has of self-interest. That's what I'm all about. I'm going to find my life. I'm going to find fulfillment. I'm going to live for myself. He says that, that kind of person who tries to live for themselves, who tries to maintain control of their life, they're going to end up losing their life in the end. And you know what that means, right? That means final judgment. That means hell. Jesus says if you're going to live life that way, where you're just living for yourself, living according to this world, you're going to lose your life in the end. You're going to eternally perish. But, Jesus says, whoever loses his life now... For my sake, in other words, whoever gives his life to me completely, he is the one who will save it. Whoever relinquishes control, who gives up living for himself, who chooses rather to live for Christ, that person will be saved. He or she will have eternal life. And not only eternal life, not only eternal life, but it's, it's really the way to find true life now, isn't it? Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. So the only way, loved one, to find life, to find real life, eternal life, a life that that satisfies, a life that matters for all eternity, is to lose it for Jesus' sake. It's to live for Christ. It's to love Jesus and serve him. It's for Jesus to be the most important person in your life. And I think that's why a lot of us Christians are sometimes live frustrated lives, right? Because we're, we're still, you know, bent toward ourselves. And, but yet the Spirit won't leave us there, right? Praise God. And, he's, and so it's just like, give it all to Jesus. The happiest, most fulfilled Christians are those who say, Jesus is all the world to me. Jesus is more important to me than even living for myself. 
My life is completely at his disposal. It's like that song that, I don't know how new it is, it's kind of new to us, we've sung it a couple of times, right? Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. That's what he's talking about here. So Jesus demands supreme loyalty. If we are to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, we must love him more than anything or anyone else in this world, more than our families, more than our hobbies, more than our jobs, more than ourselves. Of course, as we're focused on him, we, we, we live in all those areas for his glory and independence on him, don't we? So that's the first point. And remember, I said that was, most of our time would be there. But we, let's just wrap up the chapter with this second statement. We saw Jesus demands supreme loyalty. Secondly, then, Jesus rewards supreme loyalty. He rewards supreme loyalty. Look at verse 40. Jesus says, Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and the one who receives a righteous person because he's a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Remember what the context of Matthew 10 is? Jesus has been sending out his disciples into the world to preach the gospel. And for most of the chapter, Jesus has warned us that as we go out for him, we will face persecution. People will not want to hear it. They'll reject it. But, praise God, Jesus is saying, not everyone is going to hate us. (laughs) By God's grace, some people will receive us. They will love Christ and they'll love his disciples. And so he's saying those who take you in, those who show hospitality, those who supply for your needs, those who help support gospel ministry, Jesus is saying they're going to be rewarded. Because it's interesting as you dig into these verses a little uh, closer, notice Jesus says when you do that, right, when you take someone in or when you somehow bless Uh, Someone who's serving Christ, when you come alongside them and support them in their ministry of the gospel, when you do that, notice he's saying, you're actually doing it for Jesus. In other words, whatever you do to them, to that person, to bless them, you're actually doing that to Jesus. Isn't that what verse 40 says? Whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. So doing good to Christ's servants is doing good to Christ and to the Father who sent Christ. Jesus is going to teach the same thing in a passage in Matthew 25, talking about the final judgment, a passage you're probably familiar with. Remember when Jesus says, for Matthew 25, 35, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the people are like, Lord, when did we do that for you? King Jesus answers in verse 40, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And that's a good parallel passage because that's exactly what he's saying here. If you give a cup of cold water to one of my little ones, meaning one of my disciples who is insignificant in the eyes of the world, it's like you're doing it for me. What a motivation to serve, right? What a motivation to partner in the, with the gospel, is that not only are we blessing that person, but, but in essence, it's like we're, we're blessing Christ. And so, Jesus says, and you'll be rewarded. Right? Because, again, during times of persecution, right, it's, it's a little 
risky. It's a little dangerous to receive a servant of Christ because to support a disciple is to identify with their mission. And as we've seen, it's to identify with Christ himself. And so, you know, think about this original setting. Those who would bring in the disciples who are out there preaching, you know, well, these disciples have been being persecuted and now the person who brought them in might get persecuted, right? Because of their association. And so, but Jesus is is encouraging them saying, I'm going to reward you. I'm going to reward those who have supported and blessed my disciples. And so Jesus says, I see every time you support gospel ministry. I see every time you bless one of my disciples, even with something as simple as a cup of cold water, I'm going to reward you. I'm going to reward those who do good to my servants. In fact, Jesus says, when you receive my servants, I'll give you the same blessings and rewards that I'm giving to them. So, summing that up, to support Christ's servants is to share in their labors, which means we will share in their rewards as well. So, may God help us to be faithful to partner with those who are serving Christ. So, again, this is all teaching us something about discipleship. Loyalty to Jesus means being loyal to his servants as well, and Jesus rewards such loyalty. So, In conclusion, let's just wrap up this whole passage together. As I I studied this passage, for whatever reason, verse 37 kept sticking out to me. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not fit to be my disciple. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not fit to be my disciple. We have to guard against idols, don't we? Even idols of our own children. But that phrase that kept sticking out is more, right? More, whoever loves more. And so if you sum up this passage, Jesus is saying, whoever would be my disciple must love me more than anyone or anything else. More than family, more than pleasure, more than even yourself. And so that's my final admonition to us, AGC. Let us love Jesus more. Let us love Christ more. You say, how? Well, what Scripture keeps saying, it's by fixing our eyes on Jesus. It's by setting our minds on things above. It's by thinking about Christ. Think about his great love for you. How he left heaven and became a man for you. How he suffered and died on the cross for you. How he rose and sent his spirit to give you new life. Think of how he took the full punishment for your sins and in exchange gave you his perfect righteousness. Think of how he intercedes for you now at the Father's right hand. Think of how he loves you and is sanctifying you, getting you ready for his return. He's our bridegroom getting his bride ready. Think how he's coming back for you. And think how he's going to delight in you forever in his eternal kingdom. And so may God grow us to love Jesus more and more and more, and more. Let's pray. Father, first I just pray for any here today who are trying to find their life according to the world's standards. Oh God, any, any here today who have bought into sin's lies and, and the world's deceit that 
It's all about living for yourself. It's all about finding, taking care of yourself and finding security in, in, in what you can do. Oh, God, please show them that that kind of life is going to, they're, they're going to lose it in the end. That when they stand before you someday, all their riches, all their education, all their good deeds, that's not going to provide anything for them. All we have is Christ. Our only hope when we stand before you someday is to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, to be united to Him by faith. And so, Father, may, out of your abundant grace and mercy, may you call people to salvation even today. May you cause people to, to relinquish control of their life, to, to lay down at your feet today, to by faith embrace you as Lord and Savior today. May you assure them that as they do that, they will truly find life. They'll they'll know eternal life. They'll know peace with you. They'll know their sins are forgiven. They'll they'll truly be knowing what they were created for. To know you and to bring glory to you. Please do that today, Father, in young and old today. And for those... Father, whom you've already graciously saved, may you um, help us to love you more. Lord, we realize we still have sin that needs to be put to death. We realize how quick we are to to want to live for ourselves, how slow we are to want to relinquish all control. We realize how, how prone our hearts are to produce idols that get in the way. Of, of giving you the first place. And so, Father, we, by your enabling, we, we repent of all of that today. Forgive us for, for even the semblance of putting something else before you. We want you to have the first place. Please help us to love you more. And, Father, for those who are, who, by your grace, are doing that and are, are paying the price, Lord. Maybe their family relationships are strained or, or maybe they're suffering persecution in other ways. And certainly we pray for our brothers and sisters around this world who are, are paying the ultimate price. Father, may you strengthen them and encourage them with your promises that you, that they have you and that you are more than enough and they have your church Increase our love for the body of Christ. And that you're going to reward them. You're going to welcome them into heaven. And they're going to be with the saints forever. Thank you for your word. Thank you for calling us to be your disciples. May you help us to love you more. And show how worthy you are of all praise and glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Will you stand, please, and we'll sing our praises to him.